With a robust economy and low inflation, markets and economics are in a complicated era. WealthVest presents the Weekly Bull and Bear, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial professionals the most up-to-date weekly analysis of the trends and developments occurring in capital markets both here and around the world. Listen in as we analyze these developments and shine a light on the events that matter to us. Hello, everybody. We are getting into most recent Bull and Bear weekly podcast. Today is September 3rd, just getting back from the Labor Day weekend. Uh, let's start. If you look at the screen, right now the Dow's dropped about 300 points this morning, roughly 1.17%. Uh, the S&P's down roughly 19 points or 0.66%. We've got the 10-year Treasury sitting at about 1.45, and uh, some other numbers that I know Tim will talk about here momentarily is that the PMIs uh, have been revised lower, a little bit under 50. Uh, so Tim, let's kind of delve into these morning numbers and uh, let's see our thoughts. Yeah. Um, look, we've been talking about weak PMIs and the trend on global PMIs and U.S. PMIs. Uh, since I put up those charts, those slides, when we were out in Bozeman uh, earlier in the very early spring, I want to say. Um, you know, this trend has been very clear. It's not just the U.S. It is global. Um, and, you know, uh, there's not much you can do about it uh, from, uh, from a U.S. policy standpoint. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going into recession. Uh, but a 49.1 PMI, your ex new orders is 47.5. Remember, 50 is kind of the Mendoza line between c- contraction and growth. Uh, but the trend here uh, has been so negative. Uh, it really does seem like the trend will continue because it is so consistent in the U.S. and globally. Remember, we've been over 50 here for 35 months. We last had a little manufacturing scare in kind of late 15, early 16. Uh, we bounced out of that. Uh, the consumer stayed strong. The consumer remains uh, very solid. But you start to see employment components start to soften. You start to see uh, total hours worked and total uh, total uh, income start to slow. Um, you know, this is going to start to hit the consumer as well. I've, I've not been super negative on the consumer, but I've been saying we're late cycle. I do think we're going into what is at least going to look for a little while like an industrial recession. Um, but, you know, look, we've had ISMs this week before that didn't send us into recession. Uh, we'll see. It's going to be a close call. Yeah, in terms of these PMIs, so this is one of the lowest, this is the lowest reading since uh, April of 2009. I know we've talked about how much of Europe's been under this 50 mark for a long time. Are there any, I guess, um, good bright spots in terms of where we're looking at this manufacturing data right now, or is most of most of the world underwater when it comes to this metric? Yeah, no, I mean, Germany's getting slower. Germany looks like they're right on the verge of recession. China, every kind of uh, every stat kind of facing into China keeps getting weaker. Uh, India put up a weak number. Latin America with boys and arrow, uh, at least seems to be doing a little bit better. Uh, well, I should say Brazil alone. Obviously, Argent- uh, the Argentinians will just default uh, forever. Um, but no, there's not much of a glimmer of hope in the global economy. It is a global economy. So we're all kind of going in the same direction. 
so I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, the U.S. consumer's in good shape. You cited the 10-year at 140. Everybody on this call, if they haven't already refinanced, probably ought to look into it. Uh, that's a positive. You did see in the most recent construction report, while commercial continues to soften, you did get a little bit of an uplift in residential. And it just stands to reason that with these almost bizarrely low interest rates, now, now remember, as much as the 10 years come, the 30-year mortgage has lagged a little bit, and it will. But still, you're going to have very, very, very low rates that really do help the consumer um, in certain areas, right? In auto purchases and, and house purchases, doesn't really help you at all on your revolving credit card debt, though. And that debt keeps going higher. Yeah, I mean, let's let the consumer. We've we've seen a couple revisions since uh, last week, right? So we saw kind of a backdated revision in terms of uh, consumer. Um, Spending. I mean, and we're looking at consumer spending. You know, we still got the lowest unemployment rate in nearly uh, 50 years. Uh, you know, last month it rose quite a bit. But then when we were talking about the uh, Michigan numbers, the consumer sentiment, that was a revised number. Um, so, you know, it came in at 89.8 for August, which fell below some of the preliminary readings we might have been talking about a couple weeks ago so you know what seems to be the strong part because exports imports a lot of those indicators are weaker and it's been consumer spending that's really been keeping us afloat right now it looks yeah. like uh, it's falling a bit faster than we than we thought yeah i mean look the consumer can only uh can only outspend uh their income for so long savings rates are still somewhat robust but savings rates because you have such great wealth bifurcation, savings rates aren't really a great thing to look at since only a very small percentage uh, of the country actually really has meaningful savings. I think the number is 65 to 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So when employment numbers are starting to soften, remember that massive BLS revision we got. You know, we have non-farm payroll Friday, the shittiest statistic out there that the whole world wants to go crazy about just got revised down by 500,000 cumulative jobs, and it could probably get revised down again. So even though the employment data is still good, as I always say, when you're saying still, you're probably looking backwards and things aren't in your favor. Yeah. I mean, and I guess in terms of forecasts, that has also been updated. Um, one being very ominous is, you know, the CBOs raised their deficit forecasts. So last week, you know, they put out some of the revised numbers. Um, like what we're looking at functionally is, you know, debt held by the public is expected to grow from 79% of GDP in 2019 to 95% in 2029. So we're looking at the highest level since World War II. And I mean, in terms of the actual GDP, uh, in the coming decade, deficits will be maybe fluctuating between 4.4% to 4.8% of gross domestic product. So it seems like in terms of a balance sheet, you know, that is a worrying sign if we, you know, go on to the other side of the equation. But. You know, absolutely. Look, I mean, 
the last time we had a good steward uh, of, uh, of, of, of this economy was back in the Jim Baker day, not Jim Baker, uh, but, um, oh, oh, God, I'm not coming up with the name. But look, the end of the Clinton administration, uh, you had Greenspan, you had the guy from Alcoa there in the Treasury, uh, and you had uh, a more conservative Congress, and you put all of that together. Uh, and you actually balanced the budget and you actually ran a surplus. Now, you ran into the end in, in what was it, 2000, uh, when, you know, kind of the, the bubble burst in California, the, the telecom and, and Internet bubble burst back then. So, you, you know, you lost the revenues. But at least at the end of an economic expansion, there were adults who said, yeah, now is when you're supposed to pay back the debt. We're going to start running into World War II-like numbers as a percentage of the economy. And as I always say, for that to have happened at the end, at the end of a 10-year economic cycle is really shameful. You know, we had a Tea Party when Obama was president. I don't know what happened to the whole Tea Party movement, but uh, you would sure like to hear from it when we're running trillion-dollar deficits at the end of an economic cycle. Yeah, and, and it seems that, I mean, in order to placate this, we're considering ultra-long bonds. Um, you know, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says we're seriously considering this, uh, which would be a historic revamp, right? I mean, we're looking at maybe the potential of issuing 50-year to 100-year bonds. Uh, it was briefly talked about, you know, in 08, well, mostly 09, I suppose, you know, kind of on the onset of the recession. But now we're bringing this idea back. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we might see some things are getting some extra points that yield. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on, like, bonds that, you know, are 50 and 100 years in duration? I, it just seems like something Wall Street's very not used to. Um, and I, I think the reaction's been lukewarm, but, you know, don't quote me on that. I, I really don't know what they're talking about it on the street. Yeah, I, I think the thing is, if you can do it, you ought to do it. I mean, why not? You know, uh, with interest rates where they are, they're ahistorical. We've never, they're totally anomalous. We've never had rates like this. And I don't know when it ends, but we probably won't have rates like this again um, in many, many cycles. Um, if you can borrow money for this cheap for that long, I don't know why you wouldn't term out your debt. I, I really, I'm, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Mnuchin, but I, don't, I, if, I know he's considering it, and I don't know why he wouldn't do it. Uh, I think it would make I think it would make all the sense in the world when you have this much debt and rates are as cheap as they are, lock it in and term it out. I guess. And then one thing we're thinking about institutionally. Um, I mean, it's 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 not a very secret fact that you know the Federal Reserve and the president don't get along on many issues. But I think what we saw the other week was truly vexing, uh, which was that former New York president, Bill Dudley, you know, was pretty much saying, pushing to the central bank, it's like, hey, look, you should be considering the 2020 election, um, urging central bankers not to lower interest rates, uh, in, in fact, proactively trying to sway the election against the president. And the reason why I think this is so vexing is because there's three institutions, I think, that, I mean, Americans overwhelmingly, like, they respect, but then also, I guess, shouldn't be in the political fray. And that's really the military, that's the Supreme Court, and then that's the central bank. Um, and the fact that we're seeing kind of a breakdown of institutions on both ways, 
you know, and especially in seeing them being politicized against our civilian government, I do think that's uh, something that we should be worried about. And, uh, you know, the economist Larry Summers called, you know, Dudley's comments grossly irresponsible, but I, I do think that's one thing that hasn't been getting enough press time as it probably should, and, and something we should be really, I mean, I guess thinking about quite seriously. Yeah, I mean, look, I agree with Larry Summers. Uh, I, I I can't believe Bill Dudley said that. Um, I, look, I, I think the but the problem the Fed has is you're guessing what Trump is going to do. You have no idea. It's what the same problem that investors have. You're guessing what the president is going to do, and then you're also you also really don't have a great handle on what's happening in the rest of the world. When I say that, I mean especially China, where we've gotten 30% of global growth over the last 10 years. That economy is slowing rapidly. I, I, I think the Fed is just supposed to take its best guess. Um, and yeah, you may not agree with the motivations of the president, um, but you've got to take a guess. You've got to take a guess at where the economy is going. And I, I don't, I can't see Jerome Powell Get, you know, I'm sure he doesn't love the president, but I can't see him uh, changing policy in order to punish the president. I've, I've heard the argument, yeah, but yeah, but as the Fed, you're just supposed to look at the factors that are on the ground. You're not supposed to guess uh, what fiscal, how fiscal policy may change or, or, or the policy controlled by a president. Um, I don't know. I think you're just supposed to take your best guess, encompassing every and everything. You know, you've got to you've got to look at the dollar. You've got to look at trade issues. Uh, and and I, I think as rapidly as ISMs are deteriorating, as rapidly as the economy does seem to be weakening in the global economy and where global rates are, I think the Fed will continue to be uh, what I think is really accommodative. I think they'll continue to be accommodative. And I don't think that politics like that will fall, in, will fall into it, nor should they. Yeah, I mean... Absolutely, especially since you know we had a growth revision of uh, down to two percent from one point or from two point one. Uh, excuse me, um, that was from the Commerce Department. I guess one thing that I guess a glimmer of hope, or at least maybe signs of de-escalation, uh, that I maybe we should you know be optimistic about is you know China on Thursday. You know, pretty much said, hey, we're going to de-escalate. I know some of the tariffs dropped today or, uh, you know, effectively they dropped September 1st, but this is the first business day. And China said that it, it opposed escalating trade tensions, um, at least for now. And, and we saw uh, the Dow, you know, was up like 320 or so um, on, on, on last Thursday because of that. What do we think China's long game is? Do, do we, is this just a couple months or... Um, they're just going to play this out or do you think they're going to kind of take the arrows out of their quiver and, you know, go after us in the myriad of ways they can, whether that be, you know, tech or whether that be tariffs themselves or whether that be, you know, offloading some of our debt, you know, um, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're playing the long game. There's no two ways about it. They're going to continue to play the long game. I think they've been consistent. Uh, they, they have not looked to be the one who escalates, uh, but they have looked to respond. Uh, they've, they've, I think the, the, what you're referring to is not having reciprocal tariffs on the most recent tariffs that came on. Uh, right. That's not to say they're not keeping some powder dry. So while they're not looking to escalate, 
they sure as hell are not going to retreat. They are the the, the president's chief. The idea that he's going to be bullied into a corner and has to capitulate is it's it's just it's just really really silly. Uh, and if he has to deal with a recession, he'll deal with a recession. But he is not losing face to this U.S. president uh, or any other, frankly. So I, I I think that while they don't want to de-escalate, well, I don't know if they have a uh, explicit plan that means the removal of this president or, or motivated to removal of this president. Uh, this seems like a high-risk strategy, given they are teetering on the brink. But I certainly don't think they will meaningfully de-escalate if that in any way looks like retreat. And then the next question is, what will Trump do? I have no idea. My guess is he actually continues to believe in tariffs, and it'll take a hell of a lot of stock market weakness, a lot more than what we've had, because we hadn't had much, uh, for him to really say, okay, yeah, we got a great deal, most incredible deal ever, Uh, we're done. Yeah, I I mean, I guess, of course, one thing that he could do, and he's kind of where he's applied pressure is, you know, look, if if I get reelected in 2020, um, you know, I'll I'll have a mandate, right, Um, which which he will if he gets reelected. And then, of course, you know, he's termed out, so there's no reason why he wouldn't be even tougher or more aggressive uh, over the next four years if indeed he gets reelected. So yeah. I, I do think his analysis is, is on point in that way. And I just wonder how much the Chinese are baking in. Well, if he does get reelected, I mean, there's, he's got no political incentive to, to, you know, negotiate until he's very happy because, look, he's only got four more years and then, 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 then he's done. Yeah. Look, I'd be guessing. I, I think what the, what, what the Chinese are looking at, is I think they're looking at a president who they think is slitting his own throat. I think they look at it and they say, look, we're going to weaken the yuan more. The renminbi, the yuan, we'll just weaken it more so that our exporters are going to get the same money back. Uh, who will ultimately see the increase in costs uh, will be U.S. consumers. Uh, so you're looking at a situation with a rapidly slowing economy globally, a rapidly slowing U.S. economy, and now you're getting data that pushes inflation up. Uh, anything that looks stagflationary, I don't care if it's in China and the U.S., is bad. So I, I just, I think the Chinese are probably thinking that they're playing from a pretty strong hand. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, the political dynamics are just, just fascinating to me. I mean, both, I mean, you're dealing with, with a country that's, that has elections, um, you know, and yeah. press versus uh, versus one that doesn't. Um, so as much as we might have some of the fundamentals on our side, the political realities do. You throw a wrench in the pie and, and make things a little bit more complicated. Uh, it, guess in terms of countries that are, we haven't talked about in a little bit, but we definitely have some more news on this front is Brexit. Um, so, you know, you've got some people calling this a cost Constitutional crisis. I mean, what Boris Johnson did was uh, we sus- were suspending the parliament for uh, starting, I think, September 9th to, to mid October, uh, which will give people less time to, you know, renegotiate. And and in some ways, we're seeing the probability of a no deal Brexit, Brexit um, rising. You know, that was the case from 
Uh, J.P. Morgan, their economist Malcolm Barr and Alan Monks uh, stated as much, and uh, you know a lot of other analysts too at this point. So I mean, what what do we think? I mean, in terms of this Article 50, is this going to trigger a U.S. U.K. departure from the bloc? Uh, are we looking at a constitutional crisis, or is this more of a legitimate political mechanism than than the media is giving Boris credit for? Um, and, and I guess what's the change in the environment over in over in the UK? Uh, look, I, I can't speak as, as somebody who, who you know kind of grew up around uh, the UK and UK Parliament, but I, I just I, I was struck last week by comments from uh, Brits as to how moved they were by this extraordinary move. People really do in the UK. Uh, find it, un, you know, find it kind of over the top extraordinary. And yeah, uh, I think there are people who are not hyperbolic people who believe it does create a, a constitutional crisis. Um, look, these guys, uh, these guys in the in the uh, amid the Tories, they they voted for they voted for for Bojo. They've decided to have him in there, and they knew exactly what he was going to do. Uh, will they get cold feet? Uh, it's hard for me to say. I mean, it, it's going to come down to people counting heads. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, so I have no idea, but I don't think anybody else does. 25% to 35 chance of a hard Brexit, though. You were too low to start, and I think you were too low to finish at 35%. My guess is is that the guys on the right in the U.K., they, 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 they put Johnson in here. You knew what he was going to do. And I think they probably let him go ahead and do it. And that's what the pound is telling you. I keep saying every week, if you want to know what's going on in the UK, what are the odds of a hard Brexit? Look at what's going on in, uh, in pound sterling, and it's, it just keeps getting walloped. Yeah, I mean, and of course, if we have a hard Brexit, I mean, this has been talked about quite a bit, but then you have a whole new litany of, of problems for, you know, what is the financial capital of Europe? I mean, I mean, when Scotland had its independence uh, referendum years ago, I mean, I think the big reason why they eventually voted against it was because, hey, if we leave if we leave the UK, then we leave the EU. Uh, right. You know, there's no necessarily love lost between uh, the Scottish independence movement and yeah. and being part of the UK. And then and now the idea that you might have a uh, you know hard deal in Ireland and you you militarize the border again, I, I think you see kind of a resurgence of independence movements and. You know, the UK has been existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, but if anything's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and we see these countries split up, I think this might be it. Yeah, look, there's consequences to having, a, a, you know, electing somebody as foolish as Boris Johnson. There's real consequences to it, real unintended consequences. They feel like uh, they have an absolute mandate. There was a referendum uh, to leave the EU in hell or high water. I think they're going to do it, and um, they're going to suffer the consequences long-term from that, and they're myriad. Scottish independence could certainly be one of them, as you pointed out. I suppose, and then on a final note, uh, we've talked about Germany. We've got this massive, massive European economy uh, that's been running you know, negative rates. Uh, now we see an increased hostility, uh, and one of the new things that's come out of the news cycle is you have German politicians who are uh, proposing legislation to ban negative interest rates on 
retail deposits less than uh, 100,000 euro. And let's, what, what are the policy ramifications on that? And is that something uh, that might be practical or is this just gonna be kind of a dead in the water set of legislation? Well, look, one of the problems is, is if you're a bank, you want to obviously borrow uh, cheaper than what you're paying out. Um, so the, the European banks, the German banks, as we know, are, are, are really weak. Uh, so who is going to be paying out uh, that higher interest rate um, uh, to, to borrow money? I mean, essentially, you'd be borrowing money at, from consumers at a rate that is higher than what our overnight spending rates, the, the rate at which you could borrow from other banks. So um, it strikes me as it would look like another tax on an already really weak banking industry. But the bigger point here is that negative interest rates and zero interest rates and just very low interest rates that we have all over the world are a tax on savers. Uh, you know, your, your 60-year-old uh, saver, pensioner, is getting 1% on his, 1.5% on a CD. Uh, that, that, that's a tough one. People can't live off the in, There's no interest to live off of. So, and that's the concern. You've got a bigger group of savers. You've got worse demographics in Germany than you do in the U.S., not as bad as in Japan. But you've got a huge amount of wealth that is sitting in savings accounts that's earning nothing. So you can see why politicians would try to fix that. I just don't see what the easy fix is uh, when you're talking about such a sick banking industry that already exists in Europe. Maybe the government's pay it. I don't know. I mean, yeah, and I guess to even add some of the color, some of the, you know, numbers you see out of Germany is, uh, I mean, they're savers, right? I mean, they got twice the savings rate as the Brits. That's about, yeah. you know, a tenth of their disposable income they're saved. Uh, and, you know, they have almost as much stashed away in bank deposits as uh, France and Italy combined, which, you know, Germany's got 80-some million people, and I, I can't think of the top of my head what France and Italy would be, but it's, it's a fundamentally larger number than what the German sure. population so I, I think that's—I I guess I see why they're very frustrated, and there's, you know, that's a vexing issue. Uh, yeah. I guess the, yeah, yeah. No, just look. Pensioners are are anywhere there's a democracy, old people vote, uh, and old people all over the world are pissed about not getting any income uh, on their savings. So I wouldn't be surprised me if you saw legislation like that in other places. How it gets funded, I don't know. I think to close out the call now, um, as kind of we usually do, uh, what should we be looking at in kind of the coming week? And, um, and yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on anything that might be in development? Yeah, well, look, it's non-farm payroll Friday. You know, I've made my feelings clear about the quality of that statistic. <laughs> Regardless, it is, it's, very, it's really important. Uh, everybody looks at it. The street looks at it. The market will react to it. Uh, and if you, you know, it, it is a randomish number. So if you put up uh, a, a, a really weak number here, uh, as the trend suggests is possible, uh, nobody should even forecast an on-farm payroll. It's, it's really so random. So, I, you know, I'm amid a, a lot of economists on Wall Street who believe it's nonsense to even try to forecast a, a monthly non-farm payroll. But that being said, if it is really weak, then you'll see much more 
likelihood of 50 basis points getting priced in from the Fed. Uh, you know, as, as we started here, we're at 140 on the 10 year. Uh, that probably that probably continues to go even lower. Uh, so it, you continue to look at the economic data and you continue to look at uh, the position that Trump is in with the Chinese and how he plays that. The Chinese reactions, I feel like, have been pretty, pretty predictable, whereas the presidents are never predictable. So uh, in that sense, I think it's the same. You look at non-farm payrolls and, you know, we're all at, at, at we're all at the at at the mercy of what uh, the president wants to do. Great. Thanks, Tim. And uh, for all our listeners out there, thanks for subscribing as well. Uh, put a couple of the articles in these show notes, and uh, thanks again for your time. You got it, Drew. We'll see you. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthVest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthVest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthVest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthVest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.